Hey everybody, this is Josh Wilson with Storyline Church. Before you listen to the sermon, I wanted to point you to a resource called Playing God, Redeeming the Gift of Power by Andy Crouch. A lot of the ideas that you're about to hear in the sermon are influenced by this book and Andy Crouch himself. And so before you listen to the sermon, I want to point you so you can go read and learn more about his ideas from his book. It's a great resource and I'd highly recommend it. Now let's get back to the sermon. All right. Hey, here's what I want us to do tonight. All right. So uh, usually I try to give you like a little bit of a story or something, but I'm just going to kind of dive in. I I want us to deal with a theme that we haven't really touched on too immensely yet in the book of Genesis, but it's a theme that you see all the way from the very opening words of the scripture to the place that we're at now. And it's the theme of power. All right. Now, as you hear some of us, as we hear that, we Maybe just get like this stir in our stomach, right? Like we hear the word power and it just is, we don't have the best taste in our mouth for it. It's almost like morning breath, right? It just has, leaves this like sour taste in your mouth. You just don't like it. When you think about the word power, you just maybe have like these inklings of cynicism that stir inside of you. So our news outlets like to hit on the abuse of power a lot, don't they? So you think about news stories, you often think about political news stories that come with just the abuse of power. You think even in the business world, just the way that CEOs and people of power use power within the organization to take advantage of other people or to exploit other people. And then look, you even hear these stories that take place in the life of the church, don't you? Like these are things that like if we're really honest, stir a sense of skepticism whenever we think about this word power. Now, if you're looking at the Bible though, what we see in the Bible is that power doesn't really seem to be the problem, all right? For instance, if you look at the opening chapters and you think about the creation account, you see a lot about power there don't you? You see a lot about creative power and the depiction of power that you see in that creation account in Genesis chapter one is that one power is good and that two power is a gift. That power is good and that power is a gift. So think about the opening lines of scripture, right? Creation begins with power. Here's what God says. Let there be. And out of the voice of the mouth of God, literally through words, out of nothing comes something, right? So you have the days of creation that happen, creative power, incredible power is at work by God merely speaking, and out of nothing, something comes into existence. And what we see throughout the scriptures is that wisdom is like interweaved through all of creation. And so if you look at science and you look at things about this world and how it's created, you see that there is incredible thought and power that goes into creation. And how does each day of creation end? With God declaring over it, it is good, right? And then you also see at the height of creation that power is shared, that it's a gift. So at the height of creation, what happens? You see God create mankind. What does he say? Let us make man. And then what transform, what, what unfolds from that point where you see God says, let us make man in our image and according to our likeness. And then look at this, they will rule. See power, right? We're created in the image of God. 
And as we're created in the image of God, what it looks like for us to express the likeness that we have from God is that we exert power. It's shared power that he has given us here. So that day of creation ends, that height of creation where he creates mankind in his own image and he shares his power with us to where we are to rule and we are to expand creation. He makes the ultimate declaration. It's not just good. He says it's very good indeed. So you see here that power and the creation account, it doesn't seem to be the problem, does it? It's good and it's a gift. But as we've covered thus far, <laughs> we're about not 11 chapters in. We've seen a number of different stories. We know that creation goes awry, doesn't it? Right? And so, in a world that suffers with sin, what do we do with power? What do we do with it? How do we deal with this thing that is supposed to be good, that's supposed to be a gift? How do we use this thing? What does it look like to to express it in the way that God intended it to be used here in this world? Well, I think the story of Babel gives us a hint at that. All right, so here's what I want us to do tonight. I want to look at the redemptive arc of power throughout Scripture, all right? We, I think we get a lot of what God has intended for the use of power here in this passage. And so it's one of multiple accounts where you see power has gone awry. There's at least four instances before this that you see power is used in a different way that God intended it to be used by mankind here in creation. But there's something different about this story, which is why we've kind of waited for this story to talk about this theme of power up until now. So here's what I want us to do, all right? This story kind of unfolds in at least two parts, and I want to add a third part for us, all right? So the first two is that you see the abuse of power here, all right? So you don't necessarily get the ideal use of power here. You do get another term or another use of the abuse of power here. And then you also see God's consequence on this abuse of power. And then lastly, I want us to land on the redemption of power, all right? I want us to look at this redemptive arc that we see in this story as well as the rest of the Bible. And so it end, the way I want us to end is I just want to end with some application of, well, then if this is the arc of the use of power throughout Scripture, then how do we practice it today? What does it look like for us to use power today? All right, so we're going to dive right in. I want to reread verses 1 through 4 because I think it will be helpful for us as we wrestle with it on this idea of the abuse of power. So here's what 1 through 4 says. The whole earth had the same language and vocabulary. As people migrated from the east, they found a valley in the land of Shinar and settled there. Now, remember back last week, we talked about Shinar. There's this man, Nimrod, right? What a name. Nimrod was there. He was a, to be a depiction of us for how rebellious our spirit is in the nations that came from the the origin of Ham. And so you see here that we're, this is being brought back up again, all right? They said to each other, come, let's make oven-fired bricks. And they used brick for stone and asphalt for mortar. And they said, come, let's build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the sky. Let's make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered throughout the earth. All right, so here's, here's what we need to see about the story, all right? So, um, 
This is actually a flashback, all right? So imagine like a movie, and it flashes back to a scene where you see something from history past, and it's kind of bringing it back to the fold to give you context for what's happening. That's what's happening here with the Tower of Babel, right? So Genesis 9 ends with Noah and his family, right? They, they get through the flood. They come off the ark. It's just Noah and his immediate family. Genesis chapter 10 comes, and what do you get? You get the table of nations, You get 70 nations with different languages. And so the question that has to be stirred inside of you is how? How does this come to be? How do you go from one family to 70 different nations along with 70 different languages or maybe even more than that? And the answer to that is the Tower of Babel. So it's an explanation of how things have come to be, how you progress from Noah and his family to all these different nations. But like it's also a unique case study on the source of power, on the use of power. Now here, let me explain before you get further in what I mean by power, and then let me show you how it's used in this story, all right? So there's this author, Andy Crouch, and I love his definition for the use of power here. Here's how he defines it. Power is the ability to make something of the world. Power is the ability to make something of the world. So when God created us in his image, he creates us to take his creation and make something of it. So the stuff we make from the raw material of creation, but also the meaning that we make. The meaning, the purpose, the significance that we make with his created order. And so that's exactly what we see mankind doing here in the story of Babel in Genesis 11, all right? So let me show it to you. They make stuff, all right? So in verse three, it says, come, let's make oven-fired bricks. And they use brick for stone and asphalt for mortar. So they literally are taking God's creation and they're making something of it and they create stuff out of it, right? This is using and exerting power, but they make stuff for the purpose of meaning, which you see in verse four. So they say, come, let's build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the sky. And here's the meaning. Let's make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered throughout the earth. All right, so they they take creation, they make something of it, and they're also making meaning and significance out of it. And the meaning and significance is where we see the abuse of power. They're trying to make a name for themselves. All right, so you could step back and be like the cynic and be like, see, power is a problem, right? But I, what I think you can, act, here's what I'm trying to argue for us tonight, all right? You can actually learn a lot about power here and how it's to be used, all right? So you can take what you see here in a negative sense and turn it into a positive. You can see and find what it would actually look on the reverse side to use power in a positive sense. And so I have two that I want to try to draw out. You could, you're, you're smart people. You could probably look at this, draw out more than what I'm about to unfold to you. But I think these are two really big, important ones, all right? So the first one is this. Power is meant for flourishing. Power is meant for flourishing. We see this in the creation account. All right, so think back with me a little bit, and then I'll draw it back to our current story. God creates mankind, and he issues a creation mandate, doesn't he? What is that creation mandate? Be fruitful and multiply to fill the earth and subdue it. All right? So if you take that, the intended result is the exercise of power, the God-given ability to take creation, to make something of it. And look, it's for the intended good of someone else. 
It's for the intended good of someone else. You're taking God's creation, the ability that he's given you, you're making something of it, but you're using it with someone else in mind, someone else's good as the result. Now, here's why I think we use child rearing because for like the, the immediate implication or application of this, the illustration that stands out to us, all right? So it's pretty obvious the multiplication and the, the duplication that happens with procreation, doesn't it? Like, it's just there for you, all right? But parenting is also filled with personal sacrifice and purposeful instruction, isn't it? Right? So parenting requires sacrifice, this giving up your personal freedom, your sleep, your finances for someone else. You're raising someone else up in your home and there requires a lot of personal sacrifice that goes into raising up a little kid. They can't do anything for themselves, right? So they are requiring much of you. Little sacrifice on their part, if any, lots of sacrifice on your part as a parent. But it also comes with teaching someone what it looks like to rule and and subdue, all right? So as you're raising up children in the home, you're trying to help them understand what it looks like to rule and subdue their own bodies. You know what we say in our home all the time? Keep your hands to yourself. We say this over and over and over in our house. We're trying to teach them what it's like to keep their hands to have self-control. And we also say all the time, um, touch with your, uh, look with your eyes, not with your hands. Like, as you're going through Hobby Lobby, it's awful, right? You're constantly worried that your hands are going to be on something, something's going to break. You're trying to teach them what it's like to rule and subdue their own bodies, what it's like to step into social situations, and what it's like to be a normal person and make friends, what it looks like to, as I think back on me growing up in my parents' home, my dad taking me and showing me what it's like to actually fix things around the house. It's ruling and subduing God's creation. You're trying to raise up someone in your own home for their personal good. Your self-sacrifice is intended for their flourishing so that whenever they leave your home, they can go and make something of their life. Now, this is, I think, an illustration that stands out to us that the whole purpose of power is to see someone else flourish, but you can use this in other senses of your life as well, like friendship, right? You incon- when you're making a friend, what do you do? You're inconveniencing yourself in order so that someone else can flourish. So you're making a new friend, you're inconveniencing your normal rhythms of life, your own time, in order to bring someone into the circle of friends that you have so that they can also have a place of belonging so that they can flourish. Friendship. You also see it within your work, the idea of developing others in their craft so that they can go and flourish as well. This is why things like trade schools are so big right now. We see hospitals, the best hospitals are the ones that have doctors that are also teaching students because they're at the front lines and they're learning all the practices. This is the idea of expressing power for the flourishment of somebody else. The last thing could be even your hobbies, the best Teachers for music are those that are the practitioners, the ones that are playing their instruments, that are playing music on a regular basis, and they can teach others how to do it as well. God shares power and ability with us for the purpose of multiplication and flourishing. You can see that here, all right? So 
In the story of Babel, we see humanity works against this end. So we're kind of looking at the flip side there, but you see that humanity is working against this end because what we see here in this passage is that as humanity is repopulating the earth, they're migrating across the land, what happens? They stop. They don't progress. They don't keep going to the ends of the earth, repopulating all of the world. No, they stop so they won't be scattered throughout the earth. Do you see that? They're working against God's ends. He's given us a creation mandate to be fruitful and multiply and to fill the earth. What happens here at Babel is they stop. They come to this land and they stop so they can erect a city and they can build up a tower for themselves and that they can make a name for themselves. They're not working towards the end of flourishing They have turned from an outward perspective to an inward perspective. They are only living for themselves. Do you see that? So you see, this is the first instance that we see. So multiplication is the idea of the use of power, that someone else is flourishing. We also see that power is meant for glory. All right, here's where I'm getting this. So the rest of the Bible, we also see that all of this multiplication is meant for glory, all right? The witness of the Bible speaks to this. So you see in Isaiah that God created mankind for God's glory. We are to live for his glory. You see in 1 Chronicles 16, 24, that God declares glory among the nations through men and women that take it there. Men and women are created for God's glory, but then they're also to be the ones that declare this glory. And then in Habakkuk, 2.14, here's what we see, all right? The result of all this, that we're created for God's glory and that we're to declare God's glory, is that the earth to be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Have you been to the sea lately? If you look out into the expanse of the sea, all you can see is water for forever, right? That's what the Bible is putting before us of what the ends of man is supposed to be, that we live for the glory of God, we declare the glory of God, and as we go to the ends of the earth and we fill the earth and subdue it and we go to the ends of the earth, that we take God's glory there. We're pronouncing his fame, his fortune throughout all of Scripture. This is to be the end of what power and the use of the ability that God has shared with us in this world is actually intended for, but the people of Babel are misdirected, aren't they? What's the purpose or the meaning or significance that they're living for here? Not the name of God, but whose name? Their own. Their aim is not for God's glory, but that they would have a name that spreads throughout the earth. They say, come, let's build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the sky, and let's make a name for ourselves." So look, some of the ways that we learn best in this life are from mistakes, aren't they? And that's exactly what we see here at the Tower of Babel. We, we see through their mistakes the intended use of power here, that it's good and that it's a gift that's shared with us. It's intended for the flourishing, the flourishing of other people. We use ability and gifts that God has given us. We use power for the flourishing of other people, not just ourselves. And the ends of it is glory, not our glory, but God's glory. And this is all for our good. It is. This is how God has designed this world to function. This is the way that he has wired us internally to function. That whenever we do these things, everybody flourishes, including creation itself. We find this in the Tower of Babel, but because it's, we're learning it from their mistakes, not from how they have done it well. 
So that's the first part, all right? That's the first part of the story. We see that there is an abuse of power, but through the abuse of power, if we look at mourning from their mistakes, you can see what power and the ends of it is intended to be. The second half of the story is all about God's response to the actions of humanity. All right, so let me read through again, verses five through nine. Let me draw, through, draw out a few implications here, and then I wanna spend a little bit more time on application. All right, so here's what verse five through nine says. Then the Lord came down to look over the city and the tower that the humans were building. The Lord said, if they had begun to do this as one people, all having the same language, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let's go down there and confuse their language so that they will not understand one another's speech. So from there, the Lord scattered them throughout the earth and they stopped building the city and therefore it is called Babylon, which is literally like Babel. Like he's using the word, it's insignificant. For there the Lord confused the language of the whole earth and from there the Lord scattered them throughout the earth. So here's a few of the implications I want us to draw, all right? So I'm going to draw it out. I'll point to a verse where I'm kind of getting it, and we'll touch on it for a brief moment. Look at verse 5 again. God comes down from heaven to even see the tower in the city that they're building. Do you see that? They think what they have done is so impressive and so significant. There is proud, there is pride that is boiling up. They're walking with their chest out. But here's what the scriptures have to say. God had to leave his place in heaven to even come down to see it. All right, here's what a commentator said this week. This escapade, uh, this shows the escapade for what it is. A tiny tower conceived by a puny plan and attempted by a pint-sized people. ha. <laughs> Just like a, you put a knife in the chest and you like twist it around there, doesn't he? Like, my goodness. Hey, look, the same is to be said of us, all right? So whenever we think that we have exceeded expectations for ourselves, when we have achieved success, when we've triumphed over other people, what do we do as human beings? We too walk with our chest out, don't we? We like to look at ourselves and we like to think how smart we are. Look at the strategy that we use. Look at the plans that we put together. Look how well it succeeded. We are better than other people. You also see, like in a way that we try to do this is like our maturity or the way that we progressed past other people, right? Like, look how much further along I am. Look how much better my character is than somebody else. They struggle with this, but look at me. I am a person that has my life together. They're struggling with their finances. They can't make ends meet. Look, their relationships are a mess, but look at me. Look at my life. I have it together. My marriage or my relationship is great. I have great friends. I have success at my job. Like there's my finances, my portfolio looks incredible. It's impeccable. Look how further along I am than other people in my life at this point in time. Anybody ever been there? Yes, you have. I'll answer it for you. You've been there. I've been there. Look, we look at this, and when we look at the Tower of Babel, it points out to us our abuse of power is foolish. It is foolish. God comes down, and he looks at what we are trying to build 
what we think is impressive, he has to leave his place in heaven to look at our tiny monuments that we built, our tiny successes, our tiny kingdoms and queendoms that we've tried to build apart from him, our big puffed out chest, God looks at it and says, it's minuscule. We need to be reminded of how foolish the abuse of power is here in this world. The second thing that you can draw out is our inclination to rebel. You see this in verse six. It says this, if they had begun to do this as one people, all having the same language, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them, right? So here's what's happening. God is not coming down, looking at what they've done and feeling threatened by mankind. That's not what's happening here. You could read it that way, where God comes down and is like, oh my gosh, look how good they've done. They've built a great tower, Um, there is really nothing that they can't do. That's not what God's doing here. God's not looking at it and he's not contradicting himself of what we just saw in verse five. What he's actually doing, and he's pointing out the inclination of our heart. He's saying there's one language and look how they're, they're working together. All of their workings are towards trying to live a life apart from our presence, the presence of God. The way that they are working together with one language, the only thing that they're working towards is their own destruction. That's what is happening here in verse six. He's not afraid of what they could do. No, he's showing the endless endless means of humanity to scheme and rebel against God under one common language, which leads to the last implication here. God's discipline is always intended for our good. It's always intended for our good. Look, God's no dummy. (laughs) He's seen what has already happened throughout mankind. He's seen what leaving them and allowing them to continue to grow and multiply throughout this world and leaving them to their own sinful desires leads to. And it's the spread of sin throughout all of earth. And so God acts on man's behalf. He's acting on the good of humanity here. God confuses human communication and he scatters humanity throughout the end. And this is what is best for humanity here because he sees where they're headed. He knows that they're about to go to the ends of their own life. They're gonna ruin their own life. And so God intervenes here. He steps in. He breaks up the one common language. They have multiple languages. He spreads them. He scatters them throughout the earth. And this is all intended for their good so that they don't ruin their life. And that's the exact way that God always works for you and me. Look, whenever there's times that it feels like our world is being ripped apart, what we need to come back to is God may actually be ripping apart my life because where I'm headed is actually my destruction. God may providentially be intervening in your life because it is your best intentions that he is after. Even when it hurts, when it doesn't feel like what's best for your life, God is working on your behalf. All right, so that's where the story concludes, all right? It's like, wow, awesome, great. So what we see here is we're getting an answer for how did everything that this world actually, what we see in this place, all these different nations, all these different languages, we see how it all comes to be. But look, this story is also different from some of the other stories that we've seen to this point, because in a lot of those stories, you've seen these means of grace where God is like clothing a naked sinner after the fall, or you get a mark on the man that is the uh, 
fugitive that Cain kills his brother. God gives him a mark so it saves him as he's sent out from his presence. You see these things, these means of grace that happen or hope or blessing that's promised even in the midst of like this discipline or judgment that takes place. But we don't get that here. So you have to ask, why? Well, I think what the purpose is, is because it's setting up for Abraham and the redemptive work that God does throughout the rest of the Bible, right? We don't get that because God unfolds the rest of it throughout literally the rest of the entire Bible, all right? So here's where I want us to do, all right? I want us to, this is where the story ends, but I can't leave you there, (laughs) okay? Let's work through just really quickly what this redemptive arc looks like for humanity as well as power, all right? God redeems all things, which means he's redeeming you, and he's also redeeming the use of power because it is a gift that he's going to share with us again, all right? So throughout the rest of the Bible, God teases out this good news of redemption in our life, all right? So the Bible begins and ends with the goodness of humanity and power. Remember, through power, God creates humanity and shares power and ability with mankind. This is not that power is bad. Power is good in the original order. And what we see is that it's shared with us to share with the the whole uh, mission of God throughout the work of what he's wanting to do in creation. He brings you and I along with him. Through power, God perfects humanity and creation, bringing heaven to earth, doesn't he? Here's the good news. uh, The Bible doesn't go from Genesis chapter 3 to Revelation 20. It goes from Genesis 1 all the way to the very end where the new heavens and the new earth come and meet here on physical planet earth where we get to dwell with God forever. How is this accomplished? It's accomplished through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, all right? So check this out. So you see God creates the world with this statement, let there be. Jesus enters the world with let it be. Mary, whenever the angel comes and visits her and tells her that she's going to be, uh, she's going to carry a baby and it's going to be the Messiah. Here's what she says in Luke 1.38. Let it be to me according to your word. She makes space in her life so that we could see this coming Messiah, this promised Messiah of Genesis 3.15 come into this world. So we see literally through the incarnation, the, this connection to the very created order in Genesis chapter 1. Let there be, let it be. Jesus shows us the use of power for flourishing and glory in the garden before his death. Here's what he says in Luke 22, verse 24. Father, if you are willing... Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. What's happening here? Jesus is using his power so that we can flourish. He's laying down his life so that you and I may have life. Jesus is flipping the, revo- the order of what we would use power for because he's shown what it looks like to actually exemplify power in the way it's used here in this world. And then once again, God shares his power with humanity at Pentecost, all right? So Jesus goes, he dies on the cross, he's resurrected from the grave. What happens? You have 200 people that are gathering followers of Jesus at Pentecost. They're there, they're praying in a room, and the Holy Spirit descends on them like a flame that comes on each and every single one of them. What happens when the Holy Spirit comes on them? The Tower of Babel is reversed. We have all the languages and all the peoples that are dispersed. You still see diversity. 
You still see multiple languages, but God brings a common language that every person in their own native language and tongue can hear the words that are being spoken by the 200 that the Holy Spirit comes and dwells. God shares his power with humanity again. And he's redeeming humanity and he's redeeming the use of power. So what does that look like? He's redeemed humanity. He's redeemed power. He's done this all through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Well, we get what practice of redemptive power can look like in 2 Peter 1. Here's what he says in verses 3 through 7. So the apostle Peter, look, he's speaking into the life of this new church. This people that were not once a people, but now are a people because they have believed in the life and work of Jesus on their behalf. And so he's saying, look, Jesus has redeemed you. He's also redeemed the way that you practice power in this world, this God-given ability. He's redeeming this, and you can actually not just practice it in the future when heaven comes to earth, but you can actually practice it here and now. And here's what he says, verses 3 through 7. His divine power has given us everything required for life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. By these, he has given us very great and precious promises. Amen, believer? So that through them, you may share in the divine nature. Escaping the corruption that is in the world because of evil desire. Look at this. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with goodness. Goodness with knowledge. Knowledge with self-control, self-control with endurance, endurance with godliness, godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. So what does this have to do with the exercise of power? Three things, all right? I think the first way that Peter is trying to draw out what it looks like for us to practice redemptive power is first is that we lay it down, all right? Peter says we share in the divine nature. How? How do we share in the divine nature? I think it's no coincidence that the command of the Sabbath immediately follows the creation mandate. I think the first way that we practice redemptive power in this world is we lay it down. We have to practice rest in God's divine power and precious promises before we can properly express it here in this world. This is why Jesus, whenever he's speaking to a crowd, tells them to come and experience the rest that can only be found in him. He's saying, look, if you want to experience wholeness in this life, if you want to be able to walk in the ways that I have commanded you to walk, The first way that you do that is that you come to me and you rest. And this has been his order for us from the very beginning. Before sin entered into this world, he called us to lay our work and to lay our power and to lay our ability down so that we can come and rest in him just as he's modeled before us. And so when we practice Sabbath, we lay down our power. Peter says we share in the divine nature. The spirit enables us to practice redemptive power here in this life. And this means escaping the corruption that is in the world because of our evil desires. God is changing you. 
He's producing life change, transformation in you. When you come, you lay it down first. Secondly, is that you train in godliness. You see this in verses five through six. This is where you start to see like the sequence that happens. And it ends with saying that endurance ends with godliness. All right? So what you're seeing here is Peter is working out for you what it looks like for us to train in this life, to put on the life that Christ has achieved for us, that we can live with him here and now. And so he's saying, look, I want you through brotherly affection, or sorry, um, I want you to practice redemptive power by partnering with the Holy Spirit who lives inside of you so that you can put on the new life that you have in Christ. So whenever he says, for this reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with goodness, goodness with knowledge, knowledge with self-control, self-control with endurance, endurance with godliness. He's saying, train yourself in this life that Christ has accomplished for you so you can walk in relationship with him as well as the community that he has paid for you to come into this family that God has created through the redemptive work of Jesus. He's saying, I want you to put off the old life, the old patterns that you had, and here's what it looks like to put on the new life. You practice goodness. You practice knowledge that comes from the work of the Spirit in your life through spending time in the Scriptures, through being with God's people and wrestling what it looks like to live in this world with them, what it looks like for you to exceed in godliness. This is what Paul or Peter's trying to place before us, that we train in this godliness. This is practicing redemptive power here to the ends that we see finally, that we see at the very end in verse 7, that we practice humility and love. Resting in God's divine power and training in godliness leads to the outward expression of humility and love. Or another way of saying that is other people's flourishing, right? Brotherly love or mutual affection, as another translation puts it, means that we grow in our consideration of other people. That you're not, like you are a person as you're training in godliness, what it looks like to put on this new life that you have in Christ means that you're not thinking about yourself so much, but you begin thinking about other people more. There's this brotherly affection that you care for those people that God has brought you into relationship and you want them to flourish. And then look, it ends with love, which is meaning that you're willing to sacrifice for it. That you're willing to give up your own interests, your own desires, so that another person can flourish. This is what we see in Jesus in uh, John 15, 13. He says, no one has greater love than this to lay down his life for his friends. And it's the very thing that he calls us to do too. So the call isn't for us as Christians to avoid power that we look with cynicism on the way this world uses it, and sometimes even the church itself, and say, well, power is just corrupt. We shouldn't be a people that are about power. This is not something that we should try to express in our own life. This is, God has a different vision for the church. No, what he has is a vision of practicing redemptive power, transformed power through the work that he's doing in your life. So look, here's the end. So here's what Peter has called the church that he's writing to, to practice. Here's the reputation of that church at the point in time that Peter is writing, all right? So Roman Emperor Julian writes this about Christianity. Christianity has been specially advanced through the loving service rendered to strangers and through their care for the burial of the dead. There's plagues that are going on. 
everybody flees the city. Who doesn't flee? Christians who are willing to go and serve those who are dying and maybe even attract the disease themselves. It is a scandal that there's not a single Jew who is a beggar. He's, infuri- he's infuriated that there's not a single Jew that he can think of that is a beggar because of the generosity that is shared, the sacrifice that is made by the Christian church for all to flourish. And that the godless Galileans care not only for their own poor, but for ours as well. Not only are they taking care of their own people, they're also taking care of ours. Who do they think they are? It's like that office scene where like Michael's sitting down with Toby. He's like, who do, who do you think you are? What gives you the right? That's what is sort of going on here with Emperor. He's like, who do these Christians think they are? Not only do they care for them, their own people, they also care for ours. While those who belong to us look in vain for the help that should render them. He's saying even our own government can't do what the Christians are doing for this world. Look, this is the practice of redemptive power. God has done a unique work in their life. These are people that rest and the work that Christ has done for them. They're practicing of putting on this life that Christ has accomplished and achieved for them. And then they express this redemptive power through a practice of humility and love. They think about other people more than their own interests, and they're willing to sacrifice for their flourishing. And this is the reputation that the church has at that time. So look, our response as well, is not that we avoid power, but we actually lean into it, but we try to practice it out of the redemptive power that Christ is doing in your very life. Power is intended for flourishing in glory. And when it's practiced as as Christ has commanded his church to practice it, it transforms communities. So look, Lay down your power. Lay down first. So you come and experience the good work that Christ has done for you. Practice Sabbath. Practice rest. Then you come to this God who's promised that he will bring healing and hope and new life to your life. And you practice laying down your power so you may receive his divine power in your life then you train in this life that Christ has called you to. He wants you to experience new life here and now. We see the the sequence of it here. May we be the people that practice that sequence. And then the end result is that we practice humility and love. We think about other people more than ourselves, and we're willing to sacrifice on their behalf so that they may flourish. See all of this from the Tower of Babel and the work that God is doing throughout redemptive history. And look, he did it for you. Let's pray.